Dr. David White here, back for CRIM 411. So we are on to lesson two on critical perspectives in this first module. And so, uh, uh, again, I hope you enjoy uh, the format. Uh, I have found that some students love the podcast, gives them the opportunity to listen to the content on the go rather than sit down and read it or, or try to go through it yourself. Just easier to... Uh, uh, hit the podcast and sit back and listen to it or get other things done while you're listening in. Either way, I'm just happy that you're paying attention to the content. Uh, that's the purpose here is just to make content as accessible and available to you as possible. So lesson two focuses on critical perspectives. And so uh, before we dive fully into discussions of crime control policies, it's important to recognize that public policies are naturally framed by the will of the majority. You hopefully recall from earlier criminal justice classes differences between the consensus, conflict, and pluralist views of the development of the law. The consensus paradigm folks tend to look at the processes of lawmaking and law enforcement as developed through broad, inclusive, and fair public consensus, developed and administered through de uh, 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 democratic processes. Conflict paradigm folks tend to look at society as being a battle between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, they basically view these processes as being manipulated by the ruling class for their own interest and at the expense of the have-nots. In the classical perspective of Karl Marx, the father of communism, uh, this battle is between the bourgeoisie, uh, that is the rich, and the proletariat, the workers, right? And so um, that is the classic conflict paradigm. Talk about that more in a moment. Uh, pluralist paradigm folks concentrate on the fact that multiple competing interests in society are constantly working to protect their interests through the law, manipulating things in their favor. It's not simply a battle between the haves and the have-nots, uh, and it is a complex battle of complex, powerful forces that create different alignments on different social issues. Regardless of which paradigm you personally subscribe to, this lesson uh, is focusing on more critical views of how we develop the law and crime control policies. Even in the best governed countries such as ours, conf uh, conforming public policy to the will of the majority naturally creates a process of exclusion, inclusion, and exclusion. It means there are winners and losers. If 51% of representatives vote to approve a new law, it becomes the law in the books. More often there are, of course, winners. There are those folks stuck in the middle and there are those who are certainly losing. This process of lawmaking and law enforcement is clearly subject to social political forces, uh, some of which can be very powerful. Powerful propaganda and marketing strategies by powerful individuals and entities, interest groups. They can steer the will of the majority in ways that may be contrary to more or less objective views of reality. It is important for us to recognize that uh, crime is a socially constructed object. The social construction of reality is an entire theoretical framework that's rooted in symbolic interactionism uh, in that it believes that uh, the social processes occur and emerge through dialogue, through symbolic interaction between individuals, such as the work of uh, George Herbert Mead in the 1930s and also uh, Berger and Luckman's work in the 1960s, which I cite specifically in the text here. Um, in other words, society, though, gets to decide what is considered criminal, and they get to decide how we treat criminals. These views change over time. They shift with the will of the majority. 
Most cases, uh, the object of criminal justice is to control both crime and criminals in ways that reinforce socially held values and norms, punish those who violate the norms, and minimize the offender's harm to society, their influence in society. Society's efforts to build crime control policies and public policies more generally emphasize certain normative ideals that are both prescriptive and proscriptive, right? P-R-E and P-R-O. And they're prescriptive in that they lay down the law, they make claim to the limits of the courses of action, and they are proscriptive in the fact that they punish and they condemn certain behaviors. In these contexts, crime control policies set forth certain moral boundaries that are intent on regulating behavior. These boundaries are embedded in our Judeo-Christian history, as well as in our affinity uh, with ancient Greek thought, which likewise shaped the development of European ideals, and ultimately um, the political philosophies in the United States. While the supposedly uh, separate, or while we supposedly separate the church and state, Moral entrepreneurs of the law remain quite open and clear, though many people underestimate how much the state manages aspects of daily life once controlled more or less by the church. Uh, it's all the same important for us to acknowledge that. Issues such as education, social welfare, and so forth, once managed by the church, were over time replaced by state controls and programs. I say all that to say this, as public policies focus on developing solutions for problems, both real and perceived, and they tend to be harnessed in the will of the moral majority. Since public policies inherently have to have social support, it's important to, to, that it's difficult sometimes uh, for those uh, who speak out against them or who take critical views of what's being done or what is proposed and uh, what is accepted as necessary or necessarily true. Critical perspectives, though, and critical theories and theorists uh, they try to do just that. Critical perspectives uh, take that critical view. They're meant to be reflective in that they make no claims as to what or how we might make things better. Um, they simply focus on, on what uh, we are doing, right? Rather than on what could or should be done, they simply critique what is, right? And that's sort of the hallmark of a true critical theory. Classical uh, critical theory uh, was developed by a group known as the Frankfurt School, a group of German philosophers in the 20th century. Today, however, critical theories take many forms in criminal justice research. Uh, their common theme, again, is that they are reflective uh, and look at what we take for granted, what we overlook, and what we accept otherwise uncritically. As such, uh, uh, whether you tend to take a more critical view of criminal justice or you'd find yourself being a more consensus person. The value of critical theories is they make us take time to critically refl reflect on what is and to perhaps view what is from the perspective that is not our own, uh, but from the position of the other, the one who is excluded or marginalized, the one who is pushed aside by the powerful will of the majority. So in this way, they offer us value. Critical theory is sometimes conflated with conflict theory, so just want to make sure that I make clear that separation. Uh, there's no uh, um, short answer really uh, to uh, uh, this other than to simply say no, right? But let me give a little bit of a breakdown here of conflict theory and then we'll talk a little bit more about some of these critical perspectives. Conflict theory is developed by the writings of German philosopher and the father of communism, 
Karl Marx. Marx is, of course, uh, famous, along with his friend Frederick Engels, uh, for writing the Communist Manifesto in the 1800s. While we tend to look down on or discount communism as an ineffective political ideology, Marxist philosophical ideas remain influential, especially in criminal justice. Most criminology and many ethics textbooks address his ideas. And so, uh, again, you find that they are still very relevant to what we talk about uh, today. As a general rule, you should know that when referring to Marx's economic ideas, that is uh, communism, uh, we generally use the phrase Marxian, with the emphasis on the I-A-N on the end of his name. Uh, when discussing philosophical ideas, you're more likely to find the term Marxist with an emphasis on the I-S-T, just making that distinction for you. Um, so as you start to look at things a little bit more closely, uh, you might pick up on some of those distinctions. Uh, written amid massive social changes brought on by the Industrial Revolution, mass manufacturing, and the division of labor, changes in the modes of production and exchange, a pull towards a very globalized economy. Marx's general concern uh, was that the powerful forces unleashed by a capitalistic economy, when unchecked or unrestrained, what's sometimes called unfettered, um, these forces would overshadow all other social institutions, fundamentally change the, the nature of everyday life, whereby everything under the sun becomes commodified, that is, to be turned into a commodity that can be bought and sold. Everything gets reduced to a cold economic sort of calculus, cost-benefit analysis. Personal worth reduced to monetary value, uh, exchange value, and individuals then are trapped in employment uh, arrangements where they do not make anything, they don't create anything. Instead, they simply become sort of a cog in the wheel of mass production, mass production machine. In this way, there's a sense of detachment or alienation felt between the modes of production and the end products that are being created and the individual workers. So workers are said to be alienated. This puts individual in a position where uh, all they are and all they can be is to sell their productive labor capacity to those who control the wealth and resources necessary for production, who constantly, in order to make a profit, must always keep labor costs below the actual value in order to make that profit. Even institutions like the church, of course, bend to the will of the economic forces, and the working class uh, forever remains enslaved to those who control the modes of production, the wealth. So therefore, you have the battle between the haves and the have-nots. Marx's position uh, was that the ruling class then manipulates the law, uh, the lawmaking process, and uses the law to its advantage to maintain their wealth and control over the modes of production, i.e. their power. Uh, and so this is uh, an effort to control, of course, the working class. Keep in mind that the current economic structure is not pure unfettered capitalism. We have a complex economy that mixes capitalistic ideals uh, with moderated government interventions that attempt to keep the economy stable. The government itself not only prints money, but it helps control interest rates and so forth. And the government actually makes up about one-third of the total economy, uh, which means that fluctuations in government spending, uh, government-based employment opportunities represent a significant control over the economy. And so all the same, this uh, lends itself uh, to the idea of wealthy, in today's world, we use the phrase, quote-unquote, job creators of the world who push their interest in, and use their influence to help maintain their power, wealth, and status. So again, the term job creators uh, used more popularly now, but essentially talking about the same group. 
As one important aside, you need to recognize that we have totally conflated the terms liberal and conservative in the current era. Uh, to us, from a political standpoint, liberal tends to be those Democrats who uh, would increase government spending, taxes on the wealthy, benefits for the working class, so on and so forth, while conservatives, i.e. Republicans, tend to want to minimize government uh, regulation and interference, uh, reduce government size, let natural economic forces take over, let the strong survive and the weak fend for themselves. Uh, in economic terms, however, when you hear someone refer to the term neoliberal, right, quote, neoliberal policies, they are referring uh, to what you might think of more readily uh, with conservative political ideology. Neoliberalism's actually an approach that favors deregulation, free market, capitalistic economy, as well as uh, reduced government spending. And so again, just keep in mind that this has been sort of conflated, but you hear the term neoliberal, they're really talking about what you think of as a conservative position. Uh, Karl Marx was influenced uh, by an earlier philosopher by the name of George William Friedrich Hegel. Uh, and Hegel, uh, from him, we get the Hegelian dialectic. And so when applied to social movement, to the concept of history here, we see that society is constantly going through a transformational process whereby we find a dominant social norm, that normative order that I've talked about before, being challenged and ultimately toppled by a new norm uh, as it's created. And so in this Hegelian dialectic, it's a way of conceptualizing this, which I have pictured in the content. Uh, but the phrase dialectical means that uh, social processes occur through dialogue, through uh, public discourse, right? Uh, coming together and talking through and working through things. And so he hegemony, uh, or to say something is hegemonic, refers to the dominant idea. And so uh, in Hegel's concept, the social order forms a, a thesis. As soon as the thesis is accepted as institution and it's institutionalized in society, uh, it becomes sort of the hegemonic ideal. Uh, it is being pushed against by its antithesis, the counter position. So as thesis and antithesis sort of collide in this process, it creates a new synthesis and the new norm emerges and this synthesis then uh, eventually forms a new norm, a new uh, thesis. And this process simply repeats itself throughout history. And so social movements, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, cause constant shift in social movement. Uh, as I've said earlier, this is uh, generally in the direction towards greater human freedom. From a pluralist paradigm standpoint, unlike conflict paradigm, pluralist paradigm tends to recognize that there are many competing social forces at work, some visible, some latent. That means they're under the surface or obscure. But uh, all the same, these forces collectively move and steer public policies. Groups mobilize and create social movement that influence and support their particular positions. Society basically battles things out through public discourse that, uh, while occurring through established procedures, is often shaped not by fair uh, exchange of ideas, such as the case in the consensus paradigm, or careful consensus of the majority, but rather uh, by who has the loudest voice or the deepest pockets, or if you have both, hey, that's a sure sign of a success, right? Is that uh, if uh, your group happens to have loud voices and deep pockets, uh, more likely to gain political influence. So this is not to be confused again with the conflict paradigm, which focuses simply on class-related differences between ruling class and working class. But instead, this emphasis is on uh, the pluralistic pursuits of society to say, 
that we have a pluralistic society. It means that there's competing values, ideas, goals, those sorts of things. Uh, certainly true in many aspects of crime control policy. The pluralist paradigm fits well into a broader philosophical approach to the current era of history, which is sometimes referred to as postmodern. Postmodern, postmodernity, um, postmodernism. These are terms that are sometimes used interchangeably, sometimes in different distinct ways that describe different things, but generally they're used to describe the current social, philosophical mood of late 20th century thought uh, on through art and culture. Um, starting in an era around the end of World War II. So postmodernity is, of course, preceded by a period of time that we refer to as modernity. Modernity simply translates into modern age, so it's kind of confusing here. Uh, and again, people use it in slightly different ways and attach uh, uh, different time ranges here, but uh, it was an era of history more or less from the European Enlightenment, so around the 1700s through pre-World War II. Enlightenment era, perhaps best captured by the uh, philosopher Immanuel Kant uh, from that era, who famously defined enlightenment as a freedom to think for oneself. So it's an era that's based on uh, reason and rationality, uh, and that is a part of why we see that utilitarian philosophy emerge in this time frame. It's also an era of increased uh, knowledge of the world around us through natural sciences, through education, advances. Uh, uh, in uh, science and so forth. Harvard sociologist Daniel Bell uh, in the 1970s documented the advances of new knowledge being created uh, in, by looking at university libraries and so demonstrating that university libraries essentially were growing uh, and doubling their catalog of holdings every 16 years. He was pointing that out just to contextualize his statement uh, demonstrating that computers were inevitable, that we had to create uh, systems of uh, maintaining and, and cataloging our knowledge uh, that didn't involve putting things just to print. But uh, all the same, he shows that the amount of knowledge was causing libraries at the university level to have to double in size every 16 years. Uh, advances in industry through Industrial Revolution, also important around this time frame, demonstrated several important advancements in technology and mechanization and so forth. And the capitalistic economy opens up opportunities and made uh, the development of wealth possible. In many ways, modernity is shaped by the power of and belief in social institutions. It was a time of building, uh, uh, institutional building, and of strong sort of centralized narratives. Uh, I can't detail all of this social movement here, but I want to paint enough of a picture that you see that a postmodern era, which followed, became an era whereby we challenge authority, whereby we look to sort of tear down and reconstruct traditional institutions, where strong social narratives are broken and discursive, uh, where we look to radically demonstrate our sense of freedom of beingness uh, in the world. Uh, we question the ways in which others subjugate us or objectify us, and we exercise such domination over our sense of being that we sometimes see people radically redefining themselves in ways that make clear their power over their own existence, right? Their sense of being. That's a little b, being in the world. Uh, while we might think uh, that an increased sense of awareness of ourselves in the world combined with an increased sense of freedom in defining ourselves would be liberating, and in many ways it is, 
uh, one consequence of breaking strong social narratives and social norms is that it creates a sense of uncertainty. And so the fr uh, famous critical criminologist, Jock Young, uh, in 2007, his book, The Vertigo of Late Modernity, uh, says it like this, that liquid modernity generates a, a situation of disembeddedness. Culture and norms become loosened from their moorings in time and place. Normative uh, borders blur, shift, overlap, detach. And this precariousness is experienced on a personal level. The individual feels disembedded from the culture and institutions he or she finds himself in. Self-realization, the notion of constructing one's own destiny and narrative become a dominant ideal. There is overall a sense of detachment from the from the taken for granted social settings and with it an awareness of the situation and choice and freedom. This process he claims generates an uncertainty in being and what he mean and what it means to be in the world. What he calls a precariousness of being, a direct quote there from him, where quote uh, the bases of identity are less substantial. Work, family, community, once steadfast building blocks have become shaky and uncertain. He says disembeddedness, fluidity, and the uh, can create the possibility of seeing through the present institutional setup, of uh, discarding old traditions of respect for authority which justify the status quo of wealth and social division, yet it can paradoxically offer just the opposite, an acceptance of the world as it is, a mode of realism, and an essential notion or an essentialist notion of identity built around one's position of class, gender, ethnicity, place, and nation. Talking about the rise sort of identity-based politics. Ironically, Young illustrates that one of the consequences here uh, uh, is a strong but discursive focus on building one's sense of identity, which leads us again to identity politics, whereby someone's political views are very much tied to the sense of identity to this group or to that group. Social psychologists will tell you that our sense of identity to particular groups uh, bring with it a sense of loyalty to the in-group and a certain demonization to the out-group. The out-group's often constructed in sociological terms as, quote, the other. Uh, this process is very much alive in American politics today where you see either uh, you're with us, you're against us, or perhaps you're an ally. And so um, Young here claims that insecure citizens beset by forces of globalization and change seek to escape the vertigo of late modern world by reaching out for strong lines of identity and grasping at differences. This era was touched off in many ways by existential philosophers, uh, starting early figures, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, and then on to people like Frederick Nietzsche, and ultimately to folks like Jean-Paul Sartre, Jacques Derrida, uh, Albert Camus, and Michel Foucault. So much of this uh, comes from late 20th century French thought, where they look at philosophers like the rock stars, uh, and I must admit I'm personally completely enamored by the work of Michel Foucault, who lectures uh, whose lectures and writings have been very influential in my academic development. From this postmodern perspective, philosophers question not just the basic philosophical point of uh, what is the meaning of life, but they more generally question what constitutes life itself, our personal existence, and the forces that shape and constitute reality. 
Within this basic idea is embedded the, cha uh, the, the challenge of defining the ways in which we are controlled and manipulated, the ways in which human uh, potential is regulated and the potentiality shaped by dominating structures of society, that is, governance both through state government and through other uh, social institutions, what Foucault would refer to as governmentality. He used that term governmentality to separate the idea of governance as an issue of power from just simply the idea of state governance, right? And so he uses that broader term of governmentality, which sounds goofy and sort of, uh, you know, like something a philosopher would say. You may ask yourself, so what? What does uh, postmodernity have to do with criminal justice? Well, in the postmodern world, uh, if their postmodern era had a clear mantra, it would be, quote, my reality is just as important as your reality. It's the belief that I am both free to construct and live out my reality, that my reality is just as real and just as valid as your reality, and no one can tell me how to live out my reality. And if you try to, well, uh, you're being labeled oppressive. right? And so you can see how this is difficult to then enforce the law, uh, which is sort of a centralized social narrative, a social construct um, that represents that uh, social contract. It's very difficult to sort of... Uh, uh, manage that. This mantra naturally conflicts with the idea of social consensus, a necessary course, as I just said, to maintain the law. Uh, the law is socially constructed out of that will of the majority. Uh, it's the majority's way of establishing and enforcing the most formal aspects of the contract. Uh, but its legitimacy is contingent on normative acceptance of the law. Overwhelming sense of majority of citizens. Uh, uh, but what happens when there is no clear majority, right? When no majority can be found? majority can't be established. The law struggles to both define and be defined and enforced. In short, this era has led to a significant legitimacy crisis, not just in criminal justice, but in government in general. Don't overlook that. As previously stated, the general movement here is towards the maximization of human freedom, but that is not to say that coercion is not at work. As power moves and shifts over time, it can become challenging to see where that power is applied. It's actually more difficult when the narrative is broken up and, and not as centralized. Emil Durkheim, who more or less one of the fathers of sociology, uh, term, uh, coined the term anomie uh, to describe a state of normlessness. And to the extent that society suffers from high degrees of normlessness, uh, we might describe the conditions as anomic, right? Uh, to uh, say that uh, there's a high state of normlessness. And it might be claimed that our postmodern world, uh, postmodern era, is defined in part by anomic conditions, whereby uh, we are not sure what the norms are, what they should be. This leads to social confusion, breakdown in communication, whereby it's hard, uh, harder to know what is the proper etiquette, uh, what etiquette might we apply in a particular situation. So that's where uh, postmodernity becomes important to us in criminal justice practice. Uh, I want to talk just a moment about uh, moral panics and moral entrepreneurs. So one theory in criminal justice and criminology, sociology, um, that conforms well to this postmodern perspective where they're very suspiciously looking at how, when, why, where power is exercised uh, is the idea of the moral panic. So moral panic theory developed in large part by Stanley Cohen in the 1960s uh, believes that moral panics occur when there is an exaggerated, an exaggerated fear of a threat to society. 
This emphasis uh, here is on the fact that the fear is exaggerated, not supported by fact. Uh, and it's all the same, though broadly believed by society. And so in this way, it's sometimes referred to as social myths. And this process of creating hysteria that then uh, leads to calls for social action, which causes uh, politicians to act. This is part of the moral panic. These cases often involve law enforcement, criminal justice action, as the myth often involves a danger to the community, perceived danger, right, to, or to a particular group within the community. And so, again, uh, the theory emphasizes how moral panic is socially constructed. Central part of moral panic theory is the idea of moral entrepreneurs or moral crusaders who are defined as organizers, do-gooders, movement activists who push for a given cause. Right? And so that's a basic definition there. Uh, uh, and so a couple of the areas here of concentration from Good and uh, uh, Ben Yehuda from uh, 1994 is there is the concentration, right, uh, or a concern, rather, I'm sorry, concern. And so this heightened sense of concern over behavior uh, that has been established, a certain sense of hostility. So hostility towards a group of people is seen as engaging in the threatening behavior. Members are collectively designated uh, as the enemy of respectable law-abiding society. And so their behavior is therefore seen as harmful or threatening the values, the interests, the way of life, uh, possibly even the very existence of society or a sizable segment of society. So a certain hostility focused on those who are violating the terms of the social contract here. Consensus. So there must be a certain minimal measure of agreement uh, in this narrative that develops uh, uh, among society as a whole or as designated segments of society, that the threat is real, that it's serious, that it's caused by the wrongdoers of the group, uh, you know, group members uh, and their behavior. So it's fairly widespread, uh, although the portion of the population who feels this way may not need to make up actually the majority. Disproportionality, and this is the key here, is disproportionality. The implicit assumption in the use of the term moral panic is that there that the concern is not of uh, it's not in proportion right that it's out of proportion to the nature of the threat okay that it's greater than what it, it could be empirically supported uh, again I give the specific reference here I'm, I'm directly quoting some of the material uh, that I referenced earlier uh, for the full citations here you can check out the written content uh, this disproportionality is the most important aspect, though, of, of the moral panic. The next part here is, uh, is volatility. And so there is a sense of volatility with these in that they erupt suddenly sometimes, and then sometimes they disappear suddenly. Uh, and so they, they, as sudden as they appear, they disappear. And so uh, you don't ever know with the moral panic. In addition to these basic characteristics of moral panic, there are three main models uh, of how moral panics are orchestrated. There's the grassroots, there's the interest group, and there's the elite engineer. So with the grassroots moral panic, uh, grassroots implies that the, in this model that starts with the general public, the fears of soccer moms around the world, uh, other community members everywhere or anywhere, stir moral uh, panic and hysteria, social media, wherever else, and develop a narrative that then becomes widespread, genuinely believed, um, uh, but all the same disproportionate to the factual empirical realities of the concern. 
So uh, these narratives are often very believable on face value, which makes them easy to sell uh, when it comes to hysteria. The next uh, moral panic is the interest group. And so in some cases, or perhaps most cases, interest groups create and exploit moral panic. And so interest group can pretty much be any sort of political interest group uh, that might seek to stir up the hysteria uh, in ways that uh, uh, push forward their agenda. This certainly includes moral entrepreneurs uh, working for this or that uh, reason. But uh, we should question who are the interests behind this. Finally, the elite engineered some moral panics orchestrated by society's elites. And so this version argues a small and powerful group or set of groups deliberately and consciously undertake a campaign uh, to generate sustained fear, concern, or panic, typically uh, intended to divert attention away from other real problems in society whose uh, genuine solution would uh, threaten or undermine the interest of the elite. So that's three different versions of the moral panic. Again, you can check out the full content on our course page. Moral panics are uh, common, and this theory has been applied in a variety of contexts. It's provi it provides an excellent framework to consider uh, and in a vein of critical perspectives uh, where suspicion is key. Uh, there are good reasons to recognize and be tuned into the idea of moral panics. Recognizing when, where, why uh, the majority is led to believe something that is not factually true uh, should naturally provoke the question who stands to gain from such distorted myth-making. On uh, this issues of punitiveness here, as we sort of wind this thing down, uh, when addressing critical perspectives, particularly postmodern philosophy, uh, which focuses on the exercise of power in society, on subjectivity, in the ways that individuals are subjugated in various regimes of power, uh, it's important for us to recognize that the social forces uh, um, at work make demands that emphasize uh, a sense of punitiveness. And so that is to say undesirable behaviors uh, and the undesirable individual uh, is seen as something to be punished. This process of punishment harnessed, of course, in utilitarian concepts also seen and felt uh, in sort of natural reaction. Punishment reinforces the desirability of good, the demonization of bad. We dichotomize these ideas of good and bad, and the criminal justice apparatus is inherently a social institution that reinforces and reifies uh, in very formal ways society's desire to punish. In the classical style, this punishment has to be swift, certain, and severe. And so, uh, what we do to, uh, but what we do to criminalize, how uh, severe should we punish, or how severe should we punish people? How severe should the punishment be? How swift should justice be uh, at the expense of making mistakes about who's guilty? And what are the collateral consequences of such punitiveness? These are questions we should be asking. At the end of the day. Uh, the society's real intention is to get the potential or actual defiance, that is, those who defy society's uh, normative orders to conform to the social contract, to be docile uh, and compliant conformist, like the majority of people, right? And so this goal in some ways conflicts with punishment uh, in that harsh punishment does not necessarily encourage someone to not reoffend. And strategies based on classical deterrence theory uh, are not well supported by empirical evidence. This desire then to bring about conformity 
to limit deviance, defiance uh, should bring us to consider not only punitive strategies, but it should emphasize uh, the concept of restoration, whereby we emphasize the humanistic desire to draw uh, the potential deviant, the nonconforming deviant, back into society's fold to restore them to their full potential as conformists and to get them to accept the normative legitimacy of social institutions, to get them to accept the legitimate goals of conformity. And this process leads uh, to what we might contextualize as restorative, restorative justice. And restorative justice emphasizes the need to restore rather than to simply punish. And so this concept will be elaborated on uh, or I should say these concepts will be elaborated on, of course, in later modules. And uh, you'll see discussions of restorative concepts in our policies as we progress this semester. If you're more inclined to define yourself as a consensus paradigm person, then you may find uh, very little value in critical perspectives. But even the most idealistic individuals in today's society have a hard time denying that society's decisions are often all about the money. Economic interests often overshadow the humanistic pursuits of public policies. This cultural truism speaks to the power of economic forces at work in our social decision-making. Additionally, it is uh, fairly uncontroversial to acknowledge that society is easily manipulated by the power of good marketing. Um, this is not only true when it comes to selling us the newest, best products uh, that we may or may not need, but it also applies to selling us certain public policies that may or may not be in our best interest. Finally, it also seems fairly uncontroversial to acknowledge that in our society, we see various forms of power that compete for political influence. They compete for power. In this game of power, there's often winners and losers. There are many people stuck in the middle. And while some voices are heard, others are excluded. As such, in criminal justice, we must especially be attuned to recognizing how political power moves how it mobilizes action that affect our policies. We must resist buying into moral panics, aligning ourselves with this faction or that faction, or blindly accepting myths uh, that may steer policies when we know that they are not supported by objective facts. As we progress this semester, uh, you'll see how and why understanding these sort of critical perspectives, even if you disagree with them, uh, uh, often offer some valuable insight will help make you a better consumer of information relative to crime control policies. Okay, that sums up lesson two. I hope you enjoy uh, this format again and the content. As always, of course, if you have questions, please reach out to me. Until next time.